Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. Lawrence Gonzalez is the author of Surviving Survival and the bestseller Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why?, he has won two National Magazine Awards, and his essays are collected in the book House of Pain. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Your father was a combat pilot in World War II, and in January of 1945, he flew out of England and over Germany to do a bombing raid. Can you walk us through what happened next? With the left wing shot off and the outer engine of four engines gone, the plane rolled over on its back and began a sort of spinning, fluttering descent. And the centrifugal force was so great that my father couldn't get out of the plane. Um, he essentially fell 27,000 feet without a parachute and lived through it. And this, this was a, um, you know, it was a very impressive thing for a little kid to grow up hearing this story because it seemed so unreal. And yet it was real. And I believe that my interest in survival began very early in life because of that story. He was in a little fragment of the cockpit, and you said he fell 27,000 feet. How did they put him back together? Well, he pretty much broke every bone in his body except for his spine and his skull. His legs were badly messed up. His, he had a metal pin put in his right elbow to keep his arm together. But he was taken to a German prison camp where they had uh, captured a French doctor who took care of him uh, till the end of the war. And so he was very lucky that he got some medical treatment there. Uh, he, he might have otherwise died, actually. But when I was a little kid, he was still uh, recovering. He was still a, somewhat of an invalid, uh, although he, he managed to heal to the point where when I was, you know, eight or 10 years old, he would go diving off the diving board with us at the swimming pool. So he lived a full, a full and rich life after that. What did you learn about your father that allowed him to survive in a situation where others would have perished or just given up? Well, one of the things I learned about my father, and it's in the book, it's in Deep Survival, is that he had a great sense of humor and he was not afraid of laughing at himself. And I think in the worst of situations, this is something that keeps us all together. It, it's a way of keeping calm and keeping calm is a way of thinking clearly and thinking clearly is the key to surviving. Firefighters have sort of mastered the art of coping with trauma through humor. You think that is an essential aspect of surviving? Yes, and I talk, I talk about this a lot in the book. There's a part of the brain known as the amygdala, which is kind of the fear center of the brain. Um, if you see something that's dangerous, it's gonna click off the amygdala and send you know, shockwave signals to you. And these, prepare you for fight or flight. And in that situation, it's very hard to think clearly. If you laugh, if you employ humor, it actually dampens the amygdala and prevents it from doing that. So there's a good reason behind the dark humor that you encounter in you know, war zones or firefighting or police work, any of those hazardous professions. Uh, they always have a particular kind of humor going on. It definitely can temper the negative emotions. So a lot of people who survive alone report that they were doing it for someone else. Did knowing that your father had a family to get back to give him strength? 
Well, so he was uh, engaged to my mother. Uh, they hadn't had any children yet at that point. And so he, he knew he wanted to get back. I asked him, in fact, what he thought, what his first thoughts were when he had his wing shot off. And he said he thought of his mother and he thought of my mother and, and the fact that he wanted to get back to them. Um, and so, yes, it does. It's, it's a very powerful motivator. Uh, I tell a story in Deep Survival about a guy who was river rafting and he got trapped under a, a log in the, in the current and the current was holding him underwater and he was trying to pull himself out and, and having a very hard time doing it. And he finally decided that he had to get back to see his son. He had a little, a little boy at home and this image of his son sort of gave him the last bit of strength he needed to extricate himself from that log. Um, so this is always a very, very powerful motivator. If you don't have things in your life that you want to get back to, it can leave you very vulnerable. And if it isn't family, it could also just be your purpose. Yes. Um, I tell a story, you know, I don't think it made it into the book, but uh, I've told this story many times that there was a hiker uh, skier named Vito Sascunas who was in the Grand Teton mountain range. And he was going for a solo cross-country ski trip. And he got out about five miles from the head and broke his leg. And he recognized that this was a very bad thing. It was the middle of winter. Nobody was gonna come down this trail. And, um, and he knew he had to get himself back. And he did it by scooting on his butt and dedicating every hundred moves to something in his life that he loved, um, something or someone or even his dog, his guitar. Um, and he just kept thinking of things in his life that he really wanted to get back to. And this provided the motivation for him to get out and, and he did survive. So funny enough, you go on to be a stunt pilot. I'm curious which meant more to you when your father said you are a really good pilot or when Kurt Vonnegut wrote you a letter saying the excellence of your writing and the depth of your reporting reminded him yet again what a tiny voice facts and reason have in this era of wraparound mega decibel rock and roll. Well, those were certainly two um, incidents in my life that were very meaningful to me. And I have to say, having my father tell me um, that he approved of me as a pilot was very important. But my identity wasn't really caught up in being a pilot as much as it was in being a writer. And so uh, it meant a great deal to me to hear from Kurt Vonnegut out of the blue like that. Um, he just by coincidence happened to come across my work and, uh, and was kind enough to write, which was, you know, he didn't have to write to me, but he did. Um, and then again, it meant a great deal to me to hear from my father when he read my work and approved of it, because that was, you know, my, my whole life was caught up in, in the business of writing. And was it after becoming a pilot that you became interested in survival or when you started working for National Geographic doing adventure journalism? I became interested in survival as a little kid just because of my father's story. Um, I, I would always wonder why does one person survive and another doesn't? Because he lost his whole crew in that crash. He, he had a, there was a 10 man crew, including him. Um, and nine of them were, were killed. Survival was on my mind from a very early age. 
But when I became a journalist in the early 70s, I started immediately writing about aviation because I was interested in it because he was a pilot and I wanted to be a pilot. I knew that. So I started writing about uh, airline crashes and this got me very interested, even more interested, I should say, in survival uh, because of the fact that so few people survived these airliner crashes. And I really wanted to know what, you know, what goes on inside of an airliner that crashes. And so I spent, you know, part of my professional life ever since the early 70s writing about airlines and airline crashes. And I had a book come out in 2014, I believe it was, uh, called Flight 232, in which I actually get inside of a fatal crash and do a kind of 360 degree analysis of it. By the time that I was working for National Geographic, I was indeed interested in survival, but I didn't write about it directly until an incident in Glacier National Park where I got lost temporarily and realized how dangerous these adventures were. And I went to my editor and said, hey, shouldn't we be telling our readers about this? Because actually the way we published these stories was very glamorous and it made it like, um, you can just kind of wander to Glacier National Park and, and it's like a play, a playland. You know, you don't have to think about anything. You can just take in all the beauty. And it really is a risky thing to do. And so I began writing for National Geographic Adventure Magazine about survival and that work led to the book, Deep Survival. So when you were writing about these flight crashes, what did you find that when two people go into the same situation and one lives and one dies? There's no one answer and there's no simple answer, but there are, in the end of the book, uh, Deep Survival, there are 12 sort of rules of survival that I put down that tell you the kinds of things that contribute to survival, such as staying calm and uh, thinking through having a plan, that sort of thing, and using humor, as we discussed. And so people can go to this appendix in the book Deep Survival and see what, these, um, what this modeling of behavior looks like. Survivors share certain traits like training, experience, stoicism, and the capacity for their thinking brain to override the primitive amygdala portion of their brains. But let's talk about your interest in stoicism and how this philosophy can help us survive. There are going to come times in, in every life when things are going to be unpleasant. It may be an illness, maybe an accident, it may be an interpersonal affair like getting a divorce, having a loved one die. There, there's going to be something in any life that, that's painful. And so developing a familiarity with pain and um, letting go of the fear of pain it's a good practice. And the Stoics were known for, you know, enduring pain. And, and so this is why I cite their philosophy. Um, but there are going to always be things in life that hurt. And if you let every little thing in life that hurts disable you or derail you, um, you won't be getting the most out of life. And if you can just sort of take it as it comes and say, well, you know, that's life. I, I, I live in a life that has pain in it, and uh, I'm going to look for the good. 
And that's what you have to live for the good. Even the Stoics may tremble in the face of danger, but what matters is what he does next. Or as John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Can you talk about what separates those who are paralyzed from those who saddle up in the face of danger? I tell a story in Deep Survival about uh, Joe Simpson, who was a mountain climber, and he was in Peru with his partner. And they were at 19,000 feet on a snowy peak uh, when he broke his leg. Now, breaking your leg at 19,000 feet, uh, especially in a place like Peru, is pretty much a death sentence. And Joe Simpson knew this. And his first thought was, well, maybe it's just sprained. And then he immediately corrected himself. And he said, no, Joe, you broke your leg. You're dead. But I think I can get across this wall over there to that spot there where I've got a little more room, so I'm going to do that. And then over the next few days, Joe took that as a a method for self-rescue. He said, well, I'm probably going to die this afternoon, but I can see that rock over there, and I think I can make it to that rock, so I'm just going to go that far. So by setting up a whole bunch of little tasks that he thought he could complete, he was able to actually get off the mountain successfully. And so he never stopped being scared. He never stopped thinking that he would probably die. Um, He just simply did whatever he could do at that moment. And that's really uh, the key to it, to keep going. Um, When you stop and don't keep going, that's when you do die. The Stoics are all about coming to terms with death. So in a way, survivors beat death by coming to terms with it. Right. You have to accept death. I mean, it's inevitable for all of us, right? So we don't know. Is it going to be today? Am I going to go out the door when we're through talking and get hit by a bus? Um, It's possible. We know that it's possible. And so you sort of let go of death. I can't sit around all day long thinking about dying. So instead I'm thinking about, well, what am I gonna do next? What can I do that's useful right now? And one of the best ways, and I know as firefighters, you guys do this all the time. One of the best ways to survive is by helping someone else. Mm -hmm. So if you can find a purpose to help someone else, um, it immediately turns you into a rescuer instead of a victim. And that's a huge advantage in survival. How do you turn inward and inquire what power you have and go into rescuer mode? This is one of the great secrets of life um, is what, what do you do? You know, when you're, I remember my, my older daughter, Elena, um, coming to me and she was, I think she was maybe in the seventh grade or eighth grade, somewhere around that age, coming to me and saying, I don't have a passion. I don't have a purpose in life. I don't have a thing that I'm dying to do. Um, you know, how do I, how do I find that in life? And, and I said, well, let's put it this way. If you have a day off and you don't have anything to do, you don't have any homework, you don't have any chores, you don't have anything at all to do. What would you most like to do? How would you like to spend that day? And she said, well, I'd like to go to the museum of natural history and get to see what's going on behind the scenes there. And I said, oh, really? That's, that's good. I'll arrange that. And being a journalist, I was able to arrange it for her. And we went to the Field Museum of Natural History and got a tour back behind 
you know, the exhibits. And she grew up to become a PhD uh, curator of museums. And she uses her, her skills and her doctorate to use museums for um, social justice. So she helps museum curators figure out how to use their museums to encourage social justice. And by that, I mean things like the Holocaust Museum where there's been a great injustice and you turn the museum to work for the opposite. And so it's not always easy to find, to look inside yourself and find what's right for you, but it's a quest worth taking. When things don't go to plan, how can we let go of our original plan for the imagined world in favor of a new plan for what is now reality and take action? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question right now because what we saw, we, we saw and we are still seeing in the pandemic, uh, what happens when people do not agree to change their plan, when people do not look at reality and instead pretend that things are still the same. And the result has been terrible in the United States where people are just pretending there's no pandemic and they're going about their business and everybody's getting sick. Um, so one of the first elements in the 12 rules of survival that I have in deep survival is perceive and believe. And that means don't engage in denial. When Joe Simpson said to himself, well, maybe it's just a sprained ankle he was engaging in denial, but he immediately recognized this and changed, changed his mind. So you have to practice in your everyday life the business of admitting what's going on and behaving accordingly rather than trying to continue pretending everything's okay. And you're not going to get in an emergency behavior that you have not practiced in your everyday life. So the more that you can uh, practice perceiving and believing in your everyday life, the more you can do it when there's really a need. To. Um, and so, you know, I, I try to encourage people to just see what's obvious, what's right before your eyes. And in the case of this pandemic, it's like people dropping like flies. So it's all about being a realist, but also keeping a hint of optimism. There's no need to be pessimistic if you're doing the right thing. Now, if a meteorite falls out of the sky and hits me in the head, kills me, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't plan for that. Those kinds of things just happen. Um, however, if, you know, if I see clearly that this room is on fire and I do not leave the house, there's, there's something seriously wrong with me. When my kids were little, my wife and I had a, a test we would give babysitters that we called the babysitter test. And the test was to say to the babysitter, what do you do if there's a fire? And the correct answer is you take the children and leave the house. So if a babysitter ever said, you call the fire department, I would say, no, you don't call the fire department. You take the children and leave the house and get somebody else to call the fire department because the danger is fire and, and the fire department's gonna take time to get there. So. I mean, these are the kinds of things that seem obvious. You have to be thinking to, to achieve them. With that babysitter analogy, is there a sweet spot between thinking too much in that situation and thinking too little? In other words, between choking and panicking? Yes. Yeah. And I think there always is that 
that moderation in the middle. In order to do the right thing, you have to have both reason and emotion. There have been um, studies on that show that this is true with people who have had their emotional part of their brain damaged. They can't make simple decisions. Like if you say, would you like to come over Wednesday or Thursday? They can't decide without that emotional part of the brain participating too. Um, and so, yes, you have to have enough feeling and enough thinking to reach the right conclusion. But if you have, using the babysitter again, the babysitter is all emotion and there's a fire, she's gonna run screaming from the house, probably forgetting to bring the kids with her. Uh, so you really do need both. Yes. And you talk about secondary emotions. How can we develop secondary emotions that function in a strategic balance with reason to help us survive? Under stress, in an emergency situation, you get what you've practiced. So in your everyday life, your non-emergency life, you have to be in the constant habit of practicing doing these right things. So for example, a simple, a simple thing, you're in the car, you're trying to cross a street where there's no street light, there's too much traffic, you can't get across, you're waiting, you're getting impatient, you um, start screaming at people, you start pounding on the dashboard. This is not a good recipe for success in an emergency later in your life. Um, this is showing that you don't have very good balance of reason and emotion going on. And it shows you also an opportunity for changing your behavior, reshaping your behavior and learning uh, to react calmly and intelligently under stress. And so we can observe ourselves doing these things in life. You know, I, I practiced again with the kids when the kids were little, um, whenever one of them would spill her milk at the table, I would say, that's okay. Everybody spills milk. It happens. What we do when we spill milk is we don't yell and scream. We clean up the milk. So let's get a cloth and let's clean up the milk and then we'll get some more milk. And this is quite uh, dramatically different from some of the behavior I saw growing up where people would yell and scream if you spilled your milk. Um, and I think modeling this behavior is very important when bad things really do happen, big bad things, you're much more prepared for it. When people survive, is it because they are typically the rule breakers? That cuts both ways. I, I was talking to these flight attendants who were on flight 232, which is the book that I wrote about that, that fatal air crash. And I asked them, you know, how did you do it? And they were, they all of them said pretty much the same thing. They were scared to death because their plane was going down and they just went back on their training and said, you know, the training just kicked in and we did what we had practiced doing. Um, so in many cases, training, and I think this is true of firefighters, the training is very important to get you to do the right thing in an emergency, but you still need to keep that bit of flexibility that pulls you back at the last moment. The, the chief flight attendant, um, a woman named Jan Brown, was trying to get everybody out after the plane had crashed. It was on the ground and it was on fire and it was upside down in a cornfield. 
and and Jan Brown, the front of the plane had broken off. So there was a way out for people who weren't already dead. And Jan Brown was standing there at the front of the plane, motioning for people to come out and helping people to come out. And it, it and she was doing what she was trained to do. Uh, but then as the fire grew in intensity, she said all of a sudden, a coil of black smoke came toward her in the air, just this thick, greasy, black smoke coming right at her. And she realized that that was the moment where she had to lay down her training and just get out. And she stopped doing what she was doing and stepped out into the cornfield. And it was the correct thing to do. It was, it was both using her training and then when the situation changed enough, modifying her behavior. And that's what I was going to ask you about is negative visualization. Do you personally envision what could go wrong or what will go wrong in advance before embarking on your adventures? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think my kids think that I worry too much. Um, thinking about survival all my life, probably they're right. Um, but yes, I'm constantly envisioning what can go wrong in all kinds of situations, probably to the annoyance of, of my kids we now have grandkids. And so there's little kids running around, but yeah, I mean, I try, I try to balance envisioning what's going wrong, what can go wrong with just enjoying life as well. And sometimes, uh, sometimes I err on the side of caution. This is sort of what firefighters do. They train and prepare for worst case scenario. And then when the time comes, they can keep their cool and act accordingly. Now, part of the terror of being lost stems from the idea of never being seen again. Have you ever felt lost out there on one of your adventures or just lost in everyday life where you felt like you weren't being seen? And if so, how did you manage without this basic human need? Well, I think, yes. I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up in, in Texas between the age of five and 13 or 14, was it? Um, I think 14. Um, my dad's family is from San Antonio and from Mexico. And his first, he wanted to be back in Texas near his family. So the first job he took was in Houston at the medical school there. And being Mexican in Houston, Texas in like 1951, this was not a very good plan um, to, to be, he, he was a college professor <laughs> and and in Houston in 1951, um, people didn't like the idea of a Mexican being a college professor. Um, and so he took his ever-growing family, I have six brothers, and put it into a middle-class white neighborhood in Houston, Texas. And this was kind of a recipe for um, having the experience of racism firsthand. So I grew up in a in stressful situations, let's say, and, um, and learned early on some things about survival and some things about being alone and not being seen and not being recognized. So there was a kind of lost feeling innate in that situation uh, that I learned to cope with. Now I was actually lost, as I mentioned earlier in, in Glacier National Park, it was very brief um, and I was very lucky to be accidentally found because I didn't know it, but I was walking along a band of trees that were right next to a lake. And while I was trying to figure out where the heck I was, 
a boat pulled up and I could hear people talking. And so I, I went through the, the stand of trees and there were people on this boat and they took me on. Um, this was very lucky because it was the beginning of an ice storm that lasted for two days. So I would probably not have survived that. Um, but it didn't last very long, but it was a feeling, it was a very deeply troubling feeling, I'll have to tell you. And in the back of Deep Survival, there's the appendix that you mentioned that lists the 12 traits of survivors. And one of them is see the beauty. How does seeing the beauty help people not lose hope after days and months have gone by? Because the world is beautiful. And the um, at least a lot of the places we go voluntarily, it's beautiful. <clears throat> And the human sensory system has evolved to see it as beautiful, to perceive it as beautiful. These two things together can go a long way toward calming you down and allowing you to function. I think I mentioned somewhere in Deep Survival, uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz, um, the Nazis, had him in the death camp there. And he talked about how a group of prisoners would come out in the evening and watch the sunset because it was so beautiful. And that being able to see the beauty in the circumstance of Auschwitz, which was certainly not beautiful, um, showed a great transcendence on his part uh, that any of us can practice. Most of us will never find ourselves in a place like Auschwitz, but if we find ourselves in, in a, a bad way somewhere, we can probably find something beautiful to look at or think about. And there's the Stockdale paradox, the ability to retain faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of difficulties. Yeah, right. Yes, you have to have um, a faith in yourself that I can do this. And I, I try to tell people to cultivate an interior locus of control by which it means you view yourself not as a victim of outside circumstances, but as an agent that can do things in the world. And if something bad happens, you're going to find a way to turn it into an advantage. So you take adversity and you find the opportunity in it and you take advantage of that opportunity. And then talk to me about your book, Surviving Survival. If someone has suffered a traumatic experience, it won't simply go away when the experience is over. What can these survivors do to get on with their lives once their nightmare ordeals have ended? There's something that I've been talking a lot about lately because of the pandemic. Everybody's talking about wanting to get back to normal. Uh, there's the normal that we knew before the pandemic is gone. It's not going to come back. Um, these things change our lives and they change our world. And now we have to look for a new life and a new world. So one of the first things that you have to do after traumatic event is over is to reposition your thinking that you're not, you're not going back to normal. You are reinventing yourself to meet the new normal. Hmm. And that's true. Um, Right now, this is April of 2021, and we are not done with the pandemic yet, and people are pretending they're done with it, are just getting sick of it, and they're making others sicker. Um, so first of all, that's not very 
good survival behavior, but secondly, it indicates to me that there are gonna be a lot of people at the end of the pandemic, and it will end, but there'll be a lot of people who don't know how to get back their lives. Mm -hmm. So we have to recreate not only who we are, but where we are and what our culture and society are like um, after these traumatic events. I know uh, for less global events in surviving survival, I describe a lady who, um, whose husband shot her, shot her and killed himself and left her pretty traumatized in physical and psychological ways. And she rebuilt her life around helping others. So she now helps other people who've been traumatized like her, especially families. And she helps police too. She talks to uh, police organizations that deal with these kind of domestic violence uh, situations. And so she, she had been a sort of big time real estate salesperson before that and completely reinvented her life to deal with what had happened to her. So I think this is kind of the general idea behind the book, Surviving Survival. But I wrote the book um, after I finished Deep Survival, I realized that the stories in Deep Survival are all told as if they end with a rescue. So once you've gotten through the survival episode, you know, that's the end of the story. And I realized, of course, after Deep Survival came out, that that was not the end of the story at all. That was the beginning of a whole new other story, which is the story that I tell in Surviving Survival. And I know you're into the science behind all of this. Do you think there's any science saying the stiff upper lip approach sometimes works better? Yeah, they're, they're a group of books that were written by a Harvard researcher, and I cannot remember his name right now, but um, there was a longitudinal study done at Harvard where they followed a class of, of students starting, I don't know, 50 or 60 years ago, maybe even more than that. And they followed this class of students all their lives. They tried to keep in touch with them and see how they did. And it, it produced a very interesting picture of, of how people deal with trauma and aging and so forth. And indeed, one of the strategies is simply stiff upper lip and may not be the best strategy. It may not be the worst strategy, but there, there is evidence that that can work. In the course of dealing with um, the people who had survived that plane crash that I write about in my book, Flight 232, some of them walked away from it unscathed. I mean, they didn't even get injured, although this crash appears to be a fatal crash and indeed killed 112 people on the plane out of 296. Uh, a bunch of people just walked away. The way the thing crashed allowed them to survive in their seats. And then with the help of Jan Brown and other flight attendants, they walked out into the cornfield and lived. And one of these guys, I, I interviewed all these people, um, most of these people. And one of the guys went on to a career in Ohio in a company uh, that is in the agricultural business. And when I talked to him, he was about ready to retire. And I said, well, how, you know, how, how did you do? How did you do in your life? You saw terrible things. You were in a plane crash. You saw people die. Um, you know, do you have nightmares at night or what? And he said, no, I just, you know, went about my business, went on with my life. He said he had no 
PTSD or anything like that. Um, however, as I interviewed him for about two hours, I would say, as the interview went on, he started weeping, started crying and, and saying, I didn't realize that I still have these emotions within me. And so he had engaged in his whole life, you know, 30 years, something like that, in the stiff upper lip approach and it had worked, but it didn't mean that all the events were gone out of his life. And were any of them suffering from survivor's guilt? And if so, how were they managing it? Yes. Well, some people, contrary to this man, I'm talking about his name is Cliff Marshall. Some people were completely debilitated by PTSD um, with nightmares, panic attacks, anxiety, inability to work, certainly an inability to fly again. Um, and so the range of responses to trauma is very broad and you don't know what you're gonna get. Um, <clears throat> and it, it really covers the spectrum from, from Cliff Marshall who just went about his business, had his family, had his job. And although he was harboring emotions, they didn't stand in the way of his functioning all the way to people who literally, uh, you know, spent the rest of their lives reacting to the trauma. So after this pandemic, what do you think will separate those who use the experience as a defining event that made them stronger from those who were unable to get their lives back to normal? Well, I think it's the same things that people find in, in deep survival and especially in those 12 rules of survival I have or 12 traits of survival I have in the back of the book that, that people who feel in control tend to be in better control. And you don't have to be controlling everything, but you have to feel like you have some ability to manage your life. And so you have to have things to do. This is the nature of, of living. You have to have things that you need to do and want to do and that are meaningful for you to do. And so once the pandemic is really over, um, it may be that you can't go back to doing what you did before. You may have to be doing something different. And to find yourself again is, I think, the key to getting through these things and going on. So when they realize that their old lives aren't waiting for them, do you have any words for them on how they can go about reinventing themselves? I've been thinking about that a lot myself. Um, so fortunately, as a writer, I'm used to being home and I'm used to being alone. And I do my work, you know, my work is solitary work. So I didn't have to change a whole lot um, because of the pandemic, but I did have to change some things because for example, um, we have these family members around, they're, they're all nearby and our habit was to be with them a lot, the little grandchildren and so forth. And so we had to put a distance between ourselves and them for about a year um, until we could get vaccinated and, and get hugs again. And so <clears throat> we, are back, we are back to it, that part of our life, um, but with some added cautions. And, and I think we have to view this. So my wife, um, my wife is a gourmet cook. She loves to cook. She has a restaurant kitchen. Um, 
and I'm the lucky recipient of all that cooking. Um, but part of her practice of, of being a chef is to shop. So she loved to go to the butcher, uh, the baker, the Whole Foods, you know, look up all her recipes, find all the foods she needed, choose her own fish and meat, all of this stuff. And during the pandemic, she had to order everything online. Well, this radically changed the way she behaves. And now we've just begun to start, she's just begun to start going back into stores and we're being very cautious about it, even though we're vaccinated. And so I think people need to realize that the rules have changed. The old rules don't really apply. Just casting caution to the wind is not good enough because even with a vaccine, a vaccine may be 94 or 96% effective, but that's like saying I've got a gun here and 96 of the chambers out of a hundred have no bullets in them, but there's still those, those four bullets left in there. And are you gonna put this gun to your head and pull the trigger? So I think people just need to understand that they're entering a new way of life and they have to not try to recreate the old one. Well said. All right, Lawrence, two questions that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. If you were forced to give away all of your books, except for one, which one would you keep? That's a, that's a really good question. I think I'd keep the Bible. And, and that's not because I'm religious. It's, it's just a fascinating book. And it has so many different kinds of stories in it. And it also has a very mysterious language that's not always entirely clear what it means. And, um, and I think it could occupy me for a very long time. <laughs> awesome. And then if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Probably uh, Leonardo da Vinci, because he was both a great artist and a great scientist. And one of the great minds uh, in history, you know, he just did things that I don't think anybody else has ever done since then. He kind of encompassed everything in science that was available at the time and a bunch of new stuff that was not yet done and, and the mastery of art in a way that is just incomparable. And so probably, you know, if I look into it carefully enough, I'd find out that he was also a jerk, but that's the first name that comes to mind with that question. Here's to Da Vinci. All right, Lawrence, if people want to find you, they can go to deepsurvival.com. I'll have links to all your books in the show notes as well. Is there anywhere else that you want people to go to connect with you? No, that's the best way. That's the easiest way. Perfect. All right, Lawrence, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. All right. Take care now. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.